Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Taj Eldridge to the show. Taj Ahmad Eldridge is a 25-year-plus investment professional whose career has included high-level executive roles in banking, asset management, alternative investments, and entrepreneurship. As a general partner of Include Venture Partners and former senior director of investments at Los Angeles Cleantech Incubator, Eldridge has built a long-standing career with expertise in the fields of fintech, media, energy, transportation, and the circular economy. Eldridge is also one of the 70 black investors in Bevy.com, a $325 million virtual conference platform as noted in Afrotech. Taj, how are you doing today? Raj, how are you? And I must say, it is phenomenal to be able to say Raj for people calling me Raj for so many years because <laughs> my name is Taj. Uh, but it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining. Taj, I'd like to start with this question. Who was Reginald F. Lewis and what impact did he have on your life? Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for that question. You know, Reginald F. Lewis is my fraternity brother. Um, he is somebody who has inspired me. When I, when I grew up in Texas, I, I never knew about venture capital, private equity. You know, the, the things I knew about were music and sports. And that was a, a pathway for me out of sight of the community that, that I was in. And I read a book that he wrote called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? And the title <laughs> alone attracted me. And I said, why? What kind of book is this? And my assumptions were that it was something totally different than what it was. And I read this amazing story about this man who who really had an amazing life um, and, and went to Harvard and was a great lawyer and, and did some amazing deals. And he died. He died of a brain tumor uh, when I was in high school. And he influenced me so much that I ended up going, changing my, my area. I was a, I was a poetry and literature major in under, undergrad, um, thinking I had a pathway to music and, and everything else. And, and I immediately went into banking, uh, first with Wells Fargo and UBS, and then later, of course, in private equity and, and venture capital. But he was a major influence for me, uh, one of the first black billionaires in the United States. Um, and, and he's also the reason I became a member of, of the fraternity we both are in. So- why should only white guys have all the fun? Yeah, I think I think the the key to that book, and and I'm glad he wrote it to that is is not just even white guys, but also guys in period. I think since that time, what I'm loving to see is that the there's more diversity in our space of venture capital and private equity, both racial and gender diversity. Diversity. I'll also talk about it being two things, geographic and intellectual diversity, meaning that, you know, even though I got a, you know, a, PhD, a PhD in economics, an MBA in economics as well, um, the, 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 the background of having that literature degree, I think made me a little bit different than my peers because I understood the aspect of storytelling. And, and I think that 
that that title for me tells everybody that there's an opportunity for those who are not, you know, the cut of the mill, the way that we thought people in finance should be. And I think that's great. I think I think there's a beauty and diversity, not just racial and gender diversity, but people's experiences as well. Now, you mentioned racial and gender diversity, which I think are obvious, but the geographic diversity might not be as apparent. Can you share what that is? Absolutely, and and thank you for that. I, the idea of geographic diversity is a, is a is a is a major focus point of my fund and the way we do. Uh, there's a quote that I believe that I've heard over and over again. This is talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And for me, what that means is that there's a lot of talent that's out there that just needs that opportunity and the push and, and a bit of capital. For me, I experienced it firsthand when when I when I was in California. I'm in California now, but I ended up being the, the accelerator director for the University of California, and I selected a school called Riverside, UC Riverside, which is about 40 miles east of L.A., heavily black, heavily Latino, heavily immigrant. And um, most people, when I say Riverside, they remember Coachella, the music festival. But I'm so proud that our experience is there. We had Tech Cello when I was there. Uh, we ended up making Riverside the number four place in the nation uh, for black and brown entrepreneurs when I led it. And so for me, what that taught me was that there's a, there's an opportunity to, to make place-based innovation um, that you don't have to go to Silicon Valley to, to create a, a great company and build a great company as well. And, and I think also too, the, the pandemic, good or bad, the pandemic has exacerbated that where you've had a lot of people to move away from the major cities and move back to their to their homes and move back to different areas. And they realize that they can still operate from a virtual space. And I think it's creating job and opportunities. And so for me, when I think about diversity, when I think about geographic diversity, I want to see innovation and, and fund managers and founders get funded in areas outside of the outside of the norm. We want to see growth in Memphis, Tennessee and Austin, Texas and so forth and so on. And I think that's going to better this country for the for the good. I remember being involved in the Dallas startup ecosystem back in 2014-15, and back then Texas and the states that you mentioned were referred to as flyover states. Yeah. So you mentioned venture capital. Can you give the audience a brief overview? The audience a brief overview of include venture partners and impact venture funds and your role at the organization. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would first start and say that I always joke and tell people we're. We're not impact investors. We are investors who make impactful investments. I, I sincerely believe every investment that a person makes has an impact. It impacts the person's economics, it impacts communities, it impacts you know uh, uh, the way we use language. We're, we say FedEx now. We say Googling now. You know. So I. So I. I. I number one. I. I pose it and say that every investor is an impact investor. But from from the the language that we've been using and have been seeing is that for us as investors, we want to see a return that's that's more than just a financial return. We want to see, uh, uh, from our standpoint, a return on the way that uh, environmental is doing. We want to see a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. We want to see clean water returns on that by the investments we're making. We want to see social returns. We want to see communities that have been excluded from a lot of these innovations get included in those innovations as well. So when you think about impactful or impactful investments or impact investors, that's kind of the 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 the, the, the go to. For us, even specifically, we focus on this area called ESG, environmental social governance. That's just a way for us to really kind of measure our investments. 
both in the fund of funds that we make investments on, the fund managers, as well as the startup companies we make investments in as well. It's a way for us to to really kind of measure how we're doing in addition to the measurement of the return that we're doing. Because at the end of the day, what I want the audience to understand is that in the past, um, people equated impactful investments with reduction of returns or philanthropy. And we're here to say that you can you can make money, still good, do good and be good. And, and that's kind of the way that we look at the world for us. Now, you mentioned ESG, social returns. Some of that might sound a little squishy. How do you measure the impact on social returns? Absolutely. One, one, one main goal for that is employment opportunities. I think in the past, venture capital has been looked at as a job killer. It's been looked at as a way to reduce the, the amount of work that people do. And, and we look at that differently. We think that, that venture capital investments, that technology enhances jobs. And if I may, I'll give you an, a perfect example. You know, there's a company that we invested in in my previous role at, at, a, at a clean tech incubator called Lacey. And the company is called Charger Help, uh, led by African-American woman, Camille Terry. And that company is, is in the area of what I kind of call the intersection of workforce and, and, um, and clean tech. And what that company does is they train individuals to come and work to repair electric vehicle uh, charging infrastructure or stations, I should say. And the reason why that's important is because as we're making this as we're making this transition from from ICEs or combustible engines, gas powered vehicles to electric vehicles, we need to make the make sure the infrastructure is working. Imagine you going to a gas station with your vehicle and the gas pump doesn't work. You know, you you you're going to be very frustrated and you may run out of gas. And so we want to make sure that that's not happening with with the you know, with, with the electric vehicle piece of that. So I gave all that to say that that is a perfect example where this is a tech company that got venture capital funding that's at the intersection of environmental reduction, uh, environmental uh, company and a workforce, and they're actually creating jobs. And so for us, the social aspect of that is that who gets access to these jobs, to these jobs? We, we, we began and we talked about washing white guys out of the fun. And, and that's the whole thing. We want to make sure that, that people of color, women, even people with disabilities, I'm disabled. That, that is a huge part that I feel like gets missed out as we're talking about tech. We want to make sure those individuals have access to jobs. One last community that we think also needs access is second chance citizens, those people who are turn, returning home from doing time in, in, our, in, our, in our penal system. You know, if we want to reduce recidivism and, and make sure they don't return, uh, we want to make sure there are jobs available. And I think that's one of the measurements that we look at when we talk about the social piece of that for ESG for us. I interviewed a lady a couple of years ago, Tracy Wallace, here in Dallas. Mm -hmm. She called herself a social justice warrior, and she taught me a term that I've adopted, and it's returning citizens. And she said, when people have done their time and coming back, that's what we should call them. And I really, really appreciate that lesson from her. Question regarding how do you get the message out to a more diverse community that there's opportunity for them in this sector even without what people might consider traditional education? I love this question. I think, I think that what we, you know, as I mentioned, my, my degree is in economics, and there was a book that came out called Freakonomics, phenomenal, and I loved it because it, it, 
it it did what I call the eight to eighty rule. It, it made it to where people at the age of eight or the age of eighty can understand what we do as economists. I think the same thing has to happen for us in in environmentalism and in adventure. We have to to make sure we're communicating this in a in a way. This is why I, I totally began when I talked about my MBA degree and the, and the graduate degrees were less important for me than the than the literature degree because I think that. It's all about making sure you're, you're, you're communicating and, and making people feel a part of the solution. I think for so long, like I, I wasn't always an environmentalist. I, you know, I'll be very frank when I was younger, when I would think about environmentalism, I would call them by this phrase of crunchy granola, which is a derogatory term in my, my view. But crunchy granola, tree hugger, like those were terms that I, I equated with people who were environmentalist because I felt like they were they were always talking about the skies falling. It, it wasn't until I, I got sick myself and I started seeing the impacts, the immediate impacts of climate, of the environment, that I felt like we need to talk about it differently. So, so I do talk about the, the effects of climate, but I also want to talk about the benefits of it. And, and that's why I think job creation is, is, and wealth building are two main parts of it. And, you know, just from a, a main staple, as we talk about the transition from, uh, you know, gas powered vehicles to electric vehicles, there is a huge opportunity to create the next focus of, of, of generation of people who are working on vehicles or servicing vehicles who are building things for vehicles. I always tell the story of a former NBA player by the name of Vinny the Microwave Johnson, who played for the Detroit Pistons. He, run, he played against Michael Jordan and actually beat Michael Jordan, and he made a total of, I believe, $5 million during his career in the NBA. When he, when he left, he did not go into radio or television like most, but he went into the automotive industry and he led and is currently leading a multi-billion dollar company. So I'll say all that to say that I think that we have to see these examples of, of other pathways in order to get people of color and people in the other communities excited about it as well. And that's why podcasts like these are so important so people can hear these stories and see the people. Who, who may look like them, who may have similar backgrounds as them, who may not have went to school like them or, you know, and, and can see that they can do a pathway. Um, and so I, I think it's important for, for things like this to exist to allow those conversations to be had. I appreciate that. Earlier you mentioned fund of funds. Can you give an example of what that is? Absolutely. Thank you for that. So a fund, so we include ventures. We are two separate funds. Um, we are a direct investment vehicle. Think of that as a traditional investment fund or a traditional VC fund, where we make investments in startup companies, primarily startup companies that are series A. Um, and then, which means that they've raised a little capital before they raise either, either a pre-seed round or a seed round. And now they're, they're ready to scale. And that's what we look at. And then a fund of funds is actually a fund that invests in other venture funds. And so we typically look at funds between 25 million and 150 million that are led by women and people of color because we want to see, you know, more of those people into this space. And then also it goes back to this idea of, again, experiential diversity. You know, we, we want to see funds that are outside of San Francisco, that are outside of LA, outside of New York, that are in different areas that might be able to contribute to their community. Again, thinking back on the things that we did in, in Riverside or, or my partner, Bahia Robinson, who's one of the partners that she did in Africa. She led this company called App Africa to, de to, to develop a lot of things there. So yeah, you know, we, a fund of funds is a, is a really great tool that other venture capitalists use to raise capital. So you also invest in funds internationally? 
Yes, we do. And as a matter of fact, I think by the time of this 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 taping that people will hear, we would have already announced 10 funds that we're supporting that are all focused on climate, seven in the United States and three in Europe. And one is in London, one is in Sweden, and then one is in Germany. And and the reason we did that is because we, we can't solve the climate crisis in a silo. We can't just say Southern California is doing great. They have all the innovation. Um, but but Austin, Dallas, London, Brixton, Dusseldorf, everywhere else can can figure it out. You know, we have to to make sure that we're we're collaborative in the approach. And and what we did was we realized that there are people of color all over. Um, and when I say people of color, I'm, I'm, let's be specific about people of African descent. Um, and so you know that just on that end, you will see it. You know, you'll see it in in different different countries. When I, when I studied abroad in Hong Kong, in China, and Hong Kong, there were there were African students in in the country. Uh, we've just heard today about the African students in Ukraine who who you know are there and trying to get out as well. So, I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons that we're really excited about this fund that we're doing. Um, because it, it's really impacting those communities, immigrant communities that are in these countries that are that are there are um, of African descent, but also of other refugee descent. The fund that's in Sweden, one of the one of the co-founders is a refugee from Iran. Uh, that's doing some great work for the communities of color in Sweden. How do you, or how do those funds overseas hear about Include Ventures? <laughs> great question. So, uh, you know, I always say that that. The venture capital is part marketing and part financial analysis. And so, you know, one of the other things, too, is that we, we've we done a good job of really kind of getting deal flow. And we we had a lot of different contexts and connections overseas that allowed us to to work. One of one of the other things that um, I failed to mention is that the reason that I'm I'm so adamant about environmental racism uh, and environmental climate racism is because I got diagnosed with a disease about four years ago called FSGS that was caused by environmental factors. And so Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays I do dialysis, uh, which anybody knows in your audience, it's it's very tough on the body. You're you're sitting down, but I, I go three o'clock in the morning and I'm done about you know, eight o'clock to allow me to, to spend the rest of my day to do work and do things like this. I just went this morning, but I say all that to say that because I'm up at three o'clock in the morning, I'm able to call overseas. And so, <laughs> you know, I use the time wisely. I, I feel like, again, even though it's a horrible disease and it, and it, and it sucks, um, I, I took a, a negative into a positive and I used that time to contact those, those funds in Europe. And they were very appreciative that they had the opportunity to talk to a, a California based fund during their work hours, as opposed to at midnight, like they usually do. So that, that was one of the ways that I found those three funds, Melanin Capital in Germany, Unconventional Ventures in Sweden, and SDS in London. It sounds like a lot of marketing work on your behalf. No, absolutely. I love to do it. Um, I, I I love talking to the excitement of founders and fund managers. And you know, for me, I think that that's what makes this job great, is that we get to really kind of see people who really want to provide a change to their communities. And in, and when I say communities, I'm talking about the world community. Um, so I think that's great. Now, when I was doing some research on you, I came across what you call your four C's framework. Can you share what that is? Oh man, you're, you're a great researcher. I love it. Yes. Um, 
I believe that, you know, I was a founder myself and I feel like, you know, there are some funds that they just, they provide capital and they get out the way and that's great. You know, some founders may need it, but I think that I'm always about how do you add value? And for me, I talk about as an investor, both personally and through our fund, we look at the four C's and the four C's for me means access to capital, access to connections, access to customers and access to culture. When I talk about culture, I'm talking more than about race and gender yet again. What I'm talking about is a culture of good corporate hygiene, a culture of transparency, and a culture of really doing the right thing for, for your team members. Um, and so for, for us, you know, we try to add value at every step of the way, even post the investment. Um, and, and I think you know, that's, that's kind of the thing I wish I had as a founder. You know, because I think at the end of the day, when you when one of the things I've learned is that raising capital is the and once you get the check in, that's the first part of the story. You you have so much work after that because you have to make sure you, you, you use the money wisely. When I was the reason I decided to do the four C's and really kind of focus on that was that when I was in an accelerator, we had these things called platform services, which for us meant that as a founder, you didn't have to go and find a legal firm. You didn't have to go and find an accounting firm. You didn't go and have to find all these partners. The accelerator had it for you. And it reduced a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress and a lot of wasted money. So a lot of that same thing we're, we're taking for us as, as a fund manager and, and an investor, and we're providing some of those same tools to funds and founders. And, and I think, again, when you talk about the access to connections, that's what connections mean. And then lastly, customers. I mean, you know, when I, I'll be honest, when I hear when I hear companies raise money and they announce it, I cringe because I'm like, <laughs> that's not newsworthy for me. What's newsworthy is you having a great customer. You, you're announcing a customer acquisition or something of that nature, but they just raise it money. Money is a tool. It's not something you should celebrate. It's an obligation because once you take that check for me, you're obligated to me to really do a great job and run your company. And so I, I you know, I, I get excited when I see founders, like for example, there's one that's um, the founders from Dallas uh, and companies based in Boston and their, and their exposure in California called, called Spark Charge. And, you know, he just announced by the time this will be out, he would have announced his deal with Kia and Hertz. And again, for me, that's newsworthy. Those are the things we should, we should hear. And that's why access to customers is so important. I've had Joshua on the show. Awesome. Yeah, Josh is good. Excellent. <laughs> and Josh so, is also my fraternity brother. Look at that. Yeah. So capital is measurable. Customers are measurable. Connections are measurable. Culture, again, back to squishy. Yeah. How do you help it? You need to have some of those, you need to have squishiness sometimes, right? I think you do. I, I think- I'm, I'm a big fan of squishy. Yeah, I think you do. But I think there's there's ways to measure that piece of it. Um, and these are some great questions. This is this is a great pocket, I must say. Um, but I think that you, you need to have some squishiness. And the reason I say that, if for anybody who, who any of your listeners that may have went through uh, a business school and an MBA degree, I always say there's one class I felt like a lot of people just overlooked, and it's called HBO, Human Behavior and Organizations. And, and there's ways to measure you know, you, you look at Myers-Briggs and other ways to measure content, to measure people's skills, to measure the team. But, you know, again, I think there are some of these things that you have to do that, that will benefit you later on down the line. And what you would measure your, is, the, is the efficacy of it and, and how, how the team reacts to some of the things you implement and some of the things you put into place. You know, I heard it said that... Um not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted. I think. Ah, yeah, absolutely. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. Absolutely. 
it's one of my favorite. Um, and the reason I say I like Squishy, you know, half joking but half serious, there's been this push recently in the last, let's call it, three to five years around what soft skills are, the values that soft skills bring to the table. And I'm going to ask you specifically about your soft skill because I think you've mentioned it in a previous in- interview. How did you develop your listening skills? Yeah. Uh, well, my wife would say uh, it's 22 years <laughs> worth of marriage uh, that she's tried on me. But I, but I, I think I, I mentioned earlier um, briefly that I'm disabled. I'm, I'm partially blind. I was born blind in, in my right eye. And so that that really impacted me when I was younger to where I, I was, you know, I, I didn't feel I, I wanted to I had to listen more attentively because I couldn't. It, it, you know, there's a relation that people don't think about to seeing people talk and then hearing them talk and, and not being able to have that, that vision really impacted me. And so for many times I would try to, you know, I think they really made me want to be a great listener. And, and I think also too, even though I'm talking a lot now, I think that as investors, you know, founders want to be heard sometimes and, and we give good advice and we, there's ways to get a good advice. But I think first and, first and foremost, a lot of times what cringe is where advice is given before they've even heard from the founder. And I can tell you that a lot of founders of color experience that from investors who want to be mentors and think they're doing a great job and just talking versus them listening to what the founders talking about, what some of their needs are, and what direction they're going and going in. But I definitely say that listening is a really great trait. In addition, as an investor, in addition to having Southern hospitality, I think that is a superpower that I possess. That I'm I'm pretty proud that Texas has bestowed on me, amongst many things. But I think when you talk about Southern hospitality, that's really a sense of having empathy and having emotional intelligence. I've been a founder before. I know what it's like to to almost miss payroll, uh, the stress on that. And so I think having that is one of the reasons that I also like, you know, investors that have been founders before to, who work with founders, because I think you have a different bit of empathy, empathy for those situations. So some of the founders you work with, some of the CEOs, how do you coach them on listening? Yeah. So I think... I think a lot of the times, you know, we, number one, it has to have, um, you know, steady communication and constant communication to a degree. I think for us, for me, what I, when I work with founders as an advisor, um, companies I've invested in, you know, I want to make sure I'm updated. I don't want to just write a check or invest and, and walk away and never have a relationship with them. I want to be engaged with it. I think also, too, one of the easiest things that investors can do is actually use the product that you're investing in or use the service. I cringe when I hear investors who have not even been a user for the product they're investing in. I think you should, because I think you should know how people are experiencing it and you can give that feedback as well. But but I think it starts out with trust. I, I think that a lot of founders... Some founders may believe that investors don't really care about them or care about their company or care about whatever they're doing. They just care about the return. And for me, I'm a holistic investor, which means I, I, I do care about the returns. I mean, we'd, without that, I wouldn't have a job. They wouldn't have the investment. But I do care about the mental health of, of the founder. I care about the mental health of their their team. And I give you a perfect example. When, when I was at the accelerator for, for the University of California, one of the first programs that I did before we talked about, you know, product market fit or anything else. We talked about um, mental health, founder mental health, how to 
how to deal with rejection, how to deal with no's, because you're going to get many of those. And what what started me on that was at the time, I think it was in 2015, there was a young gentleman, father of three, I believe, who worked for a, a, tar- a startup tech company who committed suicide because of the pressure. And so for me, I, I, you know, again, I have to think about, you know, we need we need to bring a holistic view into investing because if something like that happens or you may have something may happen in your company, it can impact your investment. You can, you know, all, all the work that you've done can be down the drain if you allow some of these things to happen, go unchecked because you don't care about the squishiness of, of building. You know, I've been advising companies, startups in the Dallas area for 10 to 15 years. In fact, I was having a conversation this morning with a young lady. Her name is Steph from Forum VC. And I was telling her that many a time, and I, I use the word companies, and I told her this too. I said, we use the word companies, but they're people. Mm-hmm. They're individuals. And so company is just a, you know, a legal definition, right? So um, I said, occasionally I just check in from a mental health perspective and say, How's it going? I'm not asking about the company. I'm not asking about progress. I'm just asking, how are you? It can be on a weekly or biweekly basis, but absolutely right. And I know from being a founder, it's a very, very, it can be a very, very lonely journey in that every crevice of your brain is occupied by your startup. And so, like you said, it's just checking in once in a while, mental health, because if mental health isn't there, I don't think anything else is worth it. Absolutely. Totally. And, and, you know, you mentioned Dallas, I think, uh, I've said I'm born and raised in Dallas, so I'm so happy that you're there making the impact. And I'm and I'm glad to see people like Benjamin Van who are there making some impact as well. A, a good friend of mine from from Minnesota with a company called Upsy has moved to Dallas and relocated personally. So it's it's just exciting to see a lot of the excitement around the city for tech tech startup companies who are moving into the city and realizing that there's more to Dallas than just uh, oil and cows. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, how do you feel like your literature and poetry background has informed your VC career? Yeah, I I think that, you know, when you think about literature, you're reading stories and there, and there is a beginning, there's an end there, there is character development. And, and I think, I think we as humans, we also sometimes there are characters in, 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 uh, some would say Elon is a character within himself, but yes, there are characters in venture, there are characters in startup. And I think literature and poetry for me allows me to be able to connect with people and to realize that, you know, there are some people who might like this genre of, of books or, or literature and they might like a different genre and you have to quickly figure that out. And I think this is the same thing on the, on the startup tech side is that, I've learned how to be relatable to people, to to allow people to feel like as an investor, they can let their proverbial hair down and they can feel comfortable with me. And I think that that comfortability leads to honesty, truth, and transparency. And, and I think for me, that allows me to see really great companies, really great founders. And and, and I think it's, it's, it's valuable. I, I think I think there's a, there's a gentleman by the name of Frank Luntz, who was a, who is a, um, a lobby. It was a lobbyist for the political space. And he wrote this book called Words That Work. And it just, for me, it just, re, it just re, restates the power of words and how words can really change people. The the past president used a one word, four letter word of hope to really kind of get people excited and, 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 and going down a pathway. And so I think the same way can happen for, for founders and for investors. I think I've seen founders who've understood a way to, to speak to get people excited about quitting their job and working with them. I've seen investors 
speak and, and talk in a way to where they can get founders to say, I want you and only you to be my investor because I've seen it myself. And so I think that that, that piece of it for me has been more important than my analytical background. Analytical background helps. It helps me not make a bad decision and <laughs> reduce my risk. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we, we play a game of relationships uh, and this, and this is relationship, it's relationship investing. And the first part of that is relationships. And so I think that's, that's the benefit of having that, that social science, that, that literature degree that some people, so many people will shy away from. So lesson to all those folks who are, who, who want to get into technology, you don't have to uh, just be engineers. You can be many other things as well. So, so Frank Luntz's book is phenomenal. I think the ability to change people's minds using words. Now, poetry, who's your favorite poet? If oh, you have one? oh, great question. This is the first time ever in a tech uh, energy podcast I've been asked that, and I really appreciate that. Two, two poets, actually, that I, that I love. Uh, first is Jack Kerouac. He wrote, he's a beat poet from the days of San Francisco. Really interesting guy. Another one is a guy by the name of Etheridge Knight. Etheridge Knight wrote a lot of poetry while he was in prison. He was one of those returning citizens that we talked about. And also he was married to a young lady by the name of Sonia Sanchez, who's obviously one of my other favorite poets as well. Um, so may, I, I had to give you three because there are so many, but those are the basically, basically the three for me. So it's interesting, my relationship to poetry, my youngest daughter, who's nine years old, she has a book on poetry, all different poems. And um, we have a nightly routine where she reads me one poem every night. And if we skip a night, the next night's two poems. Love it. Love it. We, we need more of that. I think, I think uh, you know, I, someone asked me, why did I go into economics? And I said that for me, poetry is the possibility of language and economics is the possibility of math. And so I think there's a lot of relationships to them both. They, they both kind of exhibit beauty in both language and in numbers. You know, there's one poem I personally read over and over again, and it's um, William Blake's Auguries of Innocence. Mm. For me, the the poem that I read over that I think in, in capula- encapsulates my life is a poem by the name of Invictus that, that essentially just says, I'm the captain of my faith, the master of my soul. And uh, it, 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 it governs a lot of the things that I think about in my life. We, we talked about a lot of the difficulties with me being born disabled with, with this disease that I have. And, it, and that, that poem is one of the things that makes me realize that even with those things, my, my weaknesses are actually my strengths and that uh, they're, they're blessings, actually. So, yeah, and I think that's that, you know, I think of more people feel that way. I think we have a lot less issues around us as well. Well, speaking of weaknesses being strengths, what other lessons have you learned about yourself on your journey? Oh, good question. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, one of the things I had to learn, too, is that there's a, and it's funny, um, I'll do two things. Number one, I've, I, I mentioned how I looked at, you know, my disability. I never even used that word when I was young. I, you know, even though I was born blind, um, my right eye, I never, my parents never used that word with me. But my daughter had a similar eye disease and she also was born with a with low vision. And so I had to learn that just the way I, I approach things doesn't mean everybody should approach it the same way. We're all different for a reason. And so that also equates to how I look at 
and how I talk to founders is that I have to take myself out of it and put put their shoes on and literally walk on their shoes to to kind of understand from their point of view. And I think that's a very, you know, thing I'm constantly learning. I think the other thing that I'm learning as well is, um, you know, as an investor, you know, I, I'm I'm an optimist, I'm, which is probably, uh, you know, it's totally different from what an economist should be. Uh, but I'm an optimist. And so I try to see the good in people and good in opportunities. And, and I think as an investor, a lot of times we're so used to 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 being pessimists and we're so used to finding the no's so that way we can go on and, 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 and look at the no's. But I, I think, I you know, I'm trying to be better at looking at those no's as, as a benefit to reduce a lot of the, the noise that's out there. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, one of the things I always learned is that um, we, we're going to ever be growing and the only time we'll stop learning and stop changing is when we pass and when we leave this earth. So I'm just thankful that I have the opportunity to continue to change and continue to, to be better at, at what I'm doing as, a, as an investor and a human being. So speaking of seeing the nose, tell me about find a way or make one. Yeah, that is a quote actually from Hannibal, believe it or not, uh, the general. That is that is something that, um, you know, that's been ingrained in me from from my father, um, who, 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 you know, when I was growing up and because I couldn't see on right side, I would, you know, try to, I would be depressed or I would be kind of upset that I couldn't do certain things or, you know, because I couldn't have sight on that. And my dad would say, you find a way to make one. And so that, that has become the mantra for me throughout my life that there's nothing that's difficult. There's just a way you haven't thought about. And, and I think that that is one of the reasons that, you know, even though I began my career as a banker with Wells Fargo and UBS, I eventually became a, a, um, a founder and then an investor because that whole mantra, find a way to make one, I think is the, is the mantra of an inventor, which also is what I, I think founders are. I think founders are inventors and it's great to, to have that background. You know, I think we're cut from a similar cloth. My daughters know that if they come to me to ask me for help, I often ask them, i sorry, I often say to them, figure it out and or at least show me your first draft or your first attempt. Yeah. So yeah. let's move into the future. It's 2030-ish. What does the future hold for Include Ventures? Great question. Um, what we hope to do by that time is really build a, a great firm that is investing not only in the United States, but abroad as well, and that we really are impacting other communities, similar to how we talked about the United States. As we focus on climate, we realize that the climate issue is going to impact more than just the United States, going to impact so many other places. And and we've seen from this pandemic that we're in is something that happens in one part of the world can easily impact everyone else. And so we have a responsibility to not just there's there's this philosopher by the name of um, Argansky that talks about being an organic organic intellectual. And I think we all have to be organic intellectual that cares about the world community around us. And so what I, what I hope by that time, um, a number of years from now, eight, year, eight, eight or so years from now, that we have um, an exposure, more exposure in Latin America. We have more exposure in the continent of Africa and Southeast Asia, and that we've grown to a really great team of investors who think the same way that I do and think beyond what I do and can, can, can think I really believe that um, the future of venture is going to change. 
meaning that I think that the old model two and 20 might not be the best way to really kind of exacerbate change. There was this, um, this debate on Twitter that said that is venture capital, the best for infrastructure investments, because we need some infrastructure as we're, as we're taking this transition, energy transition. And perhaps maybe by that time we would think about a new way of deploying capital, a new way of having catalytic capital that wouldn't include would be about, um, so that's my, my goal that I see. And me personally, uh, my hope, my wife would be be retired by that time. My wife is a professor and a, and a principal, and um, I'm trying to convince her to move to Panama. So hopefully we will, <laughs> I will be good at convincing. So check back in with me in, in eight years and see if we're, you know, working. I'm working and she's relaxing in Panama City. I will for sure. Now, last question, and you've already sprinkled a lot of advice through this conversation, but if you could share some specific let's call it advice, words of wisdom, even recommendations with the audience, what would it be? Yeah. Number one, thank you, Raj, for this. This has been phenomenal. And and I must say, I feel like I'm on with Terry Gross from NPR because it's, <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels so conversational and, and, and you're so great. But if there is one piece of advice I would give for founders or for fund managers or anyone listening to this podcast is that there is value in authenticity. There's value in being yourself. I, I, I tell this story because it um, I, I was ashamed of it, but I tell it because I don't want anybody to ever experience this. When I was growing up, I was very ashamed of my name. My name means crown in Arabic. And I felt like I was other. Um, I felt like that it wasn't, quote unquote, air quotes, American. So by the time I got into corporate America, I went by a different name. I went by TAD, T-A-D, because I thought that that was... American. I thought that that was would not scare clients away. I thought that that would not make me an other. Um, and and when I was working at UBS, I met this this guy who was um, he's an Orthodox Jewish gentleman, and it was my first time really meeting somebody who's Orthodox Jewish who who you know wore the hat, wore wore his 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 uniform of his religion, and he was himself. And we had this long conversation about being yourself and the value of yourself. And at that moment is when I let my beard grow is when I used Dodge. I made sure people pronounced it correctly. And, and I think that's very important because, you know, your name is the first gift that your parents give you um, or the first gift that you're given. I should say, even if you're not given from your parents is the first gift you're given if, if you're an orphan. And so it's, it has meaning. And so for me, I think that authenticity whether you're a founder or a fund manager or just a person who's listening to this podcast is important and it's valuable. And so that that's that's the piece of advice I want to give, Raj. Well, I appreciate you, Taj, and I appreciate your time today. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.